this is a KTF Press podcast. I think that's one of the great gifts of, of, of the scriptures and, and, and of the prophets, right? With the prophets, they don't just bring just a new idea. They bring a new vision, right? They're, they're mm-hmm. saying, behold this vision of, of community, of, of peace and shalom. Everything in your lived reality would say that this wasn't even possible. But look, look at God's intention. And, and when people see that as a possibility, and not just a possibility, but a guarantee for our future, man, it changes everything. Welcome to Shake the Dust, leaving colonized faith for the kingdom of God. My name is Cy Hoekstra. I'm here with Jonathan Walton and Susie LaHood. Today, we have an interview with Dr. Micah Edmondson, the lead pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church, Koinonia, in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Edmondson earned his doctorate at Calvin Theological Seminary, and he published his dissertation as the book, The Power of Unearned Suffering, The Roots and Implications of Martin Luther King Jr.'s Theodicy. He was the first African-American to receive a PhD from Calvin, where he also contributed as an adjunct professor. He earned an MDiv from Vanderbilt Divinity School and a Bachelor of Science in Applied Physics from Hampton University. We talk with Dr. Edmondson about how he sees and resists colonized church practices in his context, his theological library of marginalized voices, how to stay uncompromising and hopeful while working in white church spaces, and a whole lot more. This conversation is packed with some hard-won wisdom, and we know you're going to love it. As a reminder, if you like this show, the best way to support us is to go to ktfpress.com and subscribe. That gets you our weekly newsletter where the three of us recommend resources to help you in discipleship and political education as you seek to leave colonized faith for the kingdom of God, as well as bonus episodes of this show. You can get a free month of the subscription by going to ktfpress.com slash free month. Again, that's ktfpress.com slash free month. Also, please remember to hit the subscribe and follow button on your podcast player and leave a rate and review. Follow us at KTF Press on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and tell your friends about us. And now here's the interview. Dr. Micah Edmondson, thank you so much for joining us on Shake the Dust today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. We really appreciate you being here. And uh, we just wanted to get started with a bit of a, a Kind of a broad question. You know, the tagline for, for this show is leaving colonized faith to the kingdom of God. And we just wanted to hear how you see colonized faith showing up in your context in Nashville and how you think about trying to lead people out of it. Wow. That's a great, great question. Um, so I, I actually think that the um, that the very shape of the church itself in terms of, of its uh, demographics uh, yeah, I'll just put I'll just start at demographics. I think the demographics of the church itself reflects uh, a history of colonization uh, because essentially um, people, uh, they have um, are able to sort of imagine themselves being a part of co- certain communities or not being a part of certain communities based on that history, based on a history of um whether or not uh, people were able to integrate or whether they were segregated, right? So for so many years, the church roles themselves were segregated. <clears throat> and so because of that, um, people, um, you know, traditions have, have, have developed basically reflecting the cultures of those who could see themselves 
within that community or were allowed to be in that community. And so there's so many ways in which, you know, the way the church uh, functions um, sort of culturally, the folks who are um, uh, who show up on Sunday morning or can see themselves as a part of certain traditions, um, uh, all those things um, really reflect that history. Um, and so we have got to be very much um, attentive to that. We've got to we've got to actually we can't just go with the flow and just think that this is the way things always have been or that this is the way uh, God wants them to be. Right. Um, we've got to be very deliberate about taking what it is that Jesus um, calls us to be and who he has shown us that we will be in the eschaton. And, and we've got we to show how that makes a claim on today. And so how does that show up specifically in, in your context in Nashville? Yeah, so, um, so, so a few different things. Um, I'm, in, I'm, a, I'm a part of, uh, I'm a minister in the Presbyterian Church of America, so mm-hmm. the PCA. And um, it is, a, it is a, a denomination that is a little over 40 years old. And we're in a city, Nashville is a city that is almost uh, one third African-American. Right. So African-Americans make up about 28 percent of the residents of Nashville, Tennessee. And this denomination uh, has been in this city for nearly 40 years. And I am the first teaching elder to be in uh, the PCA in the Nashville Presbytery, the first black teaching elder. Okay, And what that lets you know is that something has gone wrong. Mm. Right. (laughs) For it to have taken that long to bring yes. your first black pastor in a in a city that is a third black right um and this is not me pointing fingers at the pca this is me simply saying that uh the pca um and many of our denominations have inherited a set of ecclesial circumstances that we have not interrogated that we have not questioned and so we have kind of gone with the flow and that is why the demographics look the way they look so Um, So the form of ministry that I am doing is gospel ministry that lays, um, you know, lays hold of um, uh, the Catholicity of the church. The fact that the church is a people called from every tribe, nation and tongue. And so, um, you know, looking at a sort of circumstances where our denomination, our presbytery um, has not had African-American pastors in a city that is a third is that is a third black that lets me know that we've got some work to do. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's how it shows up. It shows up just in our demographics. Um, our church, the local church that I pastor, which is called Koinonia, is a church that's been very intentional in pushing back against that history. Um, it also shows up in what we um, are, are willing or not willing to address ecclesially, right? So, um, I think we many of us have inherited a faith that says that the gospel makes a claim on my personal relationship with God through Jesus. And it's very much a matter of me being personally reconciled to um, to to God so that I can go to heaven one day. Right. And some people for some for many people, that is kind of the extent of the gospel. That's what the gospel is. Right. But if we take what the Bible describes as the good news of Christ coming to to destroy the works of the devil, right, to uh, to establish justice, um, to to bring life and and wholeness to a ruined world. 
then we actually recognize that the gospel makes a claim on not just my personal individual relationship with God, but it actually makes a claim everywhere that the curse of sin and death and pain and suffering is found, right? And so mm-hmm. our our inability to actually say the gospel makes a claim on mass incarceration, the gospel makes a claim on police brutality, the gospel makes a claim on healthcare disparities and education disparities, the gospel makes a claim on all on, on domestic violence, the gospel makes a claim on all of these areas in which people are suffering. Our inability to 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 actually articulate that claim is a function of a colonized faith. It's a function of a faith that says um, we are. It says that says the role of the church is to make sure people go to heaven, rather than the role of the church is to articulate the claim that heaven makes on earth. Right? Mm. Um, you can see how people who um, don't make the claim about how heaven comes to earth, about how heaven challenges unjust systems. What they're doing is they're really complicit in allowing those systems to continue to flourish and to continue to exploit people. So, there, I, you know, I can go on and on. I mean, the way we read the Bible, <laughs> you know, uh, the way we, I can go on and on with that. But that, those are those are that's where I would kind of begin. Yeah, I, I very much appreciate that. Uh, Jonathan, I think you were about to bust in with something. <laughs> uh, yeah, man, that's, I was muted, but amen, just all, all the amens. Like, <laughs> so I met you, uh, virtually on Twitter. That was how I met you. I was like, oh, cause you tweeted, you can have a great theological library without a single slave holder on your shelf. And I was like, retweet background photo, <laughs> keep that there. Um, and so who's on your shelf? Your theological library, like what theologians, what commentaries, what commentators, because we know as a publishing company, publishing is not, you know, it's full of some slaveholders. So like, what? <laughs> so like, you know, and it's not necessarily decolonized, a decolonized space. So absolutely. Yeah. OK, great, great question. So I think that what we've got to do is we have to really um, reimagine what we believe theology to be. Right. And who we believe does theology. Right. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times when we think about theology, we think about, um, you know, I think we think about academic. I think we think about professors who are in the business of teaching religion to students who will either serve in the academy or in the church. I think oftentimes we think of th- about theology as that. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think we've got to sort of reimagine what we think theology or who's doing theological discourse actually is. So the folks, um, so, and, and with that, and when we begin to reimagine that, it will actually expand our theological repertoire. It'll allow us to see theological resources where otherwise we would not have recognized them. Mm-hmm. So some, so, so theologians, so, so some of the theologians that I have on my shelf are folks like Mariah Stewart, right? So Mariah Stewart, uh, um, so she is a, uh, she was the first woman to give a public speech in on these shores in in America and she was she was a black woman um, and she gave a she, she gave public speeches uh, around um, around politics around uh, around women's rights around um, uh, or certainly around anti-racism and, and and emancipation and she was an abolitionist and um, and she she was giving these speeches when she was in her early 30s um, she had come to faith 
on the on the in the wake of the death of her husband. And um, and she immediately recognized that um, that this Christianity, this faith makes a claim on my social situation and a claim on the situation of those around me. So she began to actually articulate that through these speeches, through pamphlets, through prayers. And and so she's a theologian. You know, she's actually a theologian. And I think that there are people that would look at Mariah Stewart and they would see her as like, you know, maybe like a social kind of, um, you know, sort of social activist, but they wouldn't look at her speech as sort of theological. I, I would say uh, folks like, um, you know, uh, certainly the example of Harriet Tubman, you know, folks like Ida B. Wells, folks like Phyllis Wheatley. Um, these are examples and folks that I've got um, on, on my shelf, you know, um, Martin Luther King Jr. I'll, I'll give you an example. So I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm sort of just moving through. He's somebody that that is fig, fig, features prominently on my shelves. You know, he's someone that actually got a degree in systematic theology mm -hmm. uh, from Boston University. He got his PhD. Most people don't know that he got his PhD in systematics. And so when he everything that he did was intentionally and deliberately and deeply theological. Right. And so but I think a lot of people listen to his speeches and they read his writings and they think, oh, you know, this is social discourse. This is right. This is sociological discourse or. Um, um, but they don't think of it as theological discourse, you know, but it, but it, it, it is, it's very much mm -hmm. theological mm -hmm. discourse. So, yeah. So, uh, so MLK, you know, his father, daddy King is another one that I have on my shelf. You can't go wrong with Augustine, you know, and, and Cyprian and, and some, you know, it's kind of some early, uh, North African theologians. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thanks. That's super helpful. Cause I, I do think that expanding the, it's intentionally narrow, right? when on purpose that we think of theology as this, right? And so when yeah. we begin to widen scope, it's super helpful. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I would say this, for everybody who's listening, I would say, um, listen to marginalized people. Um, find their theological discourses, right? Find where they are talking about what God has to say about suffering and their social situation and freedom. Um, find those things and make sure that you really dive deep into those things. That's really, really important because um, because God has he has uniquely revealed himself and his agenda to people who are on the social margins. For instance, so Hagar, right? Hagar is an enslaved person. Uh, she is a victim of uh, sex trafficking. She is a person who has been abused and she has been discarded. And and it's within the context of that pain and suffering that God, that the angel of the Lord appears to her and begins to show her that God sees her where no one else had seen her. No one else had really um, seen her, her humanity, her dignity, her worth. God had seen her. Right. And this is interesting because this is the very first place in the entire scripture, entire Hebrew Bible, where the angel of the Lord appears. And it is to a person that is an enslaved person on the bottom of the of the caste system um, that's been discarded in the midst of her distress. And God, uh, the angel of the Lord, the message of the Lord, the good news of the Lord appears to her. So God has has really, um, you know, the major salvific event in the Old Testament is is the Exodus. And so in that God is revealing himself to a bunch of enslaved people. So God had really specializes in 
and speaking to people on the bottom in some unique ways. And, and you know, they have a they have a certain set of existential situ a certain set of circumstances that allows them to long for a God that is sovereign and a God that reaches to their place. And, um, and it doesn't mean that God doesn't speak to people who are in different other places in the social system. It just means that God reaches especially down to the bottom to let everybody know that he's there for them as well. So um, so I would say, listen to people on the bottom. Um, listen to people that are that are marginalized. That's who that's who taught Jesus. The Bible was his mother, especially, you know, mm -hmm. uh, we know that Joseph was there somewhere. Uh, but the Bible, <laughs> the Gospels are especially as they as the gospel writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, compiled these um, memoir recollections uh, about the life of Jesus. People were very much careful to talk about his mother and the influence his mother had on in his life. And you see that through his minutes. So, so Mary's Magnificat, some of the great things of Mary's Magnificat about the uh, about uh, God doing this divine reversal where the folks who are uh, on thrones are brought down and the lowly, the, the humble are exalted. These great kind of these reversals. You see that in the Sermon on the Mount. So we see Mary's kind of theological influence on Jesus's own ministry. Mm. And um, and so God intentionally chose a person, uh, a, a poor woman uh, that was a marginalized uh, part of a marginalized group in, in, uh, in Roman occupied Palestine who was on the bottom. And she was the one that taught the Messiah the scriptures, you know, and I just think that's intentional, you know, and I think God is showing us something. You know, so I just say, pay attention to women, pay attention to women of color, pay attention to poor people, pay attention to marginalized folks. Listen to what they have to say. Yeah, well, and and thank you for sharing that, Dr. Edmonds. I have to say, when you were sharing that just now, my, I feel like it's so empowering and that's a piece of the story. I'd actually never heard it preached that way, the role that Mary played in in Christ's life. And um, and so thank you for for continuing to bring truths like that to the surface and demonstrating how we bring those marginalized pieces to the fore. Um, so your, your ministry has included working in a lot of predominantly white organizations. And, you know, we were just talking about decolonization earlier and, and the legacies of colonization on our religious institutions and our churches and our ministries. Right. And, and I'm sure that you've experienced that a lot. A lot of times, these predominantly white organizations and Christian ministries are, are resistant and can even be hostile toward real, thoroughgoing racial justice. And so, right. one of the things that we wanted to ask you today on the show is, how do you stay uncompromising in spaces like that? And yeah. and then also, how do you deal with the pressure and strain that 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 must put on on you and your family? Because you're also a person, and you have to carry the weight of these discussions and struggles back home with you as well. So how do you how do you deal with that on on both sides, both in terms of being a presence and pushing back, and then also how you deal with that as as a father and a husband and and a and a human being. Yeah, thank you so much for asking. Great, great, great questions. So, um, so three things: um, humility, intentionality, and measure. I think so. Humility, humility. So, I recognize that I am called to to be a witness in these settings and wherever the Lord sends me. But mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that the responsibility is on my shoulders to make these people change their minds. 
and to make these institutions change. Mm-hmm. What I'm called to do is to be a witness. And, and I'll tell you, that really frees you up when you know that like what Jesus is holding me responsible for is to tell the truth and to be a witness. But Jesus is not holding me responsible for changing these people's minds. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> that's all yeah. oh, that's. He is the one that does that. He's the one that transforms. He's the one that redeems, saves, you know, the spirit sanctifies. Um, and, and, it's, and it's his responsibility to do all the saving, you know. So so humility, um, intentionality um, to make sure that that I am being a faithful witness and being intentional and, and not thinking that that these organizations or these settings are going to are going to kind of get it unless someone says to them, um, hey, did you see this blind spot or did you see this thing? You know, so we got to be intentional about that. Um, and and I'll tell you, measure. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think that that's something that we often struggle with is measure. So what I mean by measure is is self-control in speech. Right. Um, loving self-control in speech. Right. Um, I love that that. Um, you know, that self-control is like one of the, is part of the fruit of the spirit. Um, it's, you know, the spirit is at work when someone is very lovingly thoughtful and careful about what they say, mm-hmm. um, that they are speaking in such a way that blesses and meets the hearer where they are and, and can love them well. A uh, measure means that you don't say all the things all the time. And, and and measure measure and you have to be measured whenever you're doing discipleship because measure means that you you know you again you meet people where they are and you walk them to a to a, a another place. I think about this. So God is measured in how He deals with His people, right? So God comes to people, and God knows the whole ugly truth about everything that they've ever done, everything mm-hmm. that they are currently doing, and everything that they ever will do. And God does not lay all that on you at once. Right. God will God will reveal some things, you know, but God is measured because God loves us. And and even when God is offering a rebuke, he's doing it in such a way that you can receive it and grow from it. Right. Rather than being overwhelmed by it. Right. And I think he calls us to deal with each other the same way to deal with each other with love and kindness and measure. And so um, so when I'm in these spaces, um, I say I I speak up where I feel that I can do the most good. Um, I try to be a witness. I try to speak truth. Um, I try to be honest and frank. Um, So I'm not, you know, quote unquote, pulling my punches in that sense, but I'm not saying all the things at every meeting, you know, and I'm not saying the same thing every single time Um, because, you know, I think I just think wisdom calls us to to be more varied in our responses with people and to let them know that they're more than just that, that they're more than just their worst opinion about something, you know, that they're more than just their worst mistake. They're more than just their sin. I, I try to deal with people more holistically to let them know, hey, look, we're I'm, you know, um, I'm for you. And the whole reason that I would even be calling out sin is because I'm for you, you know, because I want to see you succeed, because I want to see you grow, because I want to see you thrive. And I want to see God honored in this space. But before we get to the second half of that question, I can see a way that everything that you just said 
gets twisted into tone policing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I I don't think that that's what you mean by it, but I do think that's what some people could conceivably hear from it. I would just like to hear your thoughts on you know, the, the interaction on how the, the notions of humility or, or being measured and self-control mm-hmm. uh, can, can be weaponized to silence people. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so that is something that the person, that the speaker themselves has as a value. It's not something that the institution can force upon you, right? So um, humility, intentionality, and measure is something that I myself... Um, that I myself know that as I am seeking to be a witness and witness to Christ's truth and grace that I am, that I am actually embodying. Right. But it's not for the institution to look at me and say, you're not being humble. You're not being measured and you're not being intentional. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, you know, so I would say that's, that's a, that's, that's one way I would sort of qualify that. Another thing is, um, so we got to keep in mind that, that Christ calls us to grace and truth. Okay. Um, that's what he was, that's what he came in. And he came full of grace and truth. And sometimes we can, we can, we can choose one at the expense of the other, right? We can say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm telling truth and I really don't care how it comes off. You know, I'm telling truth and I don't care, you know, uh, I'll say it in the, I'll say it in a way that, um, that sounds mean, you know, or sounds unkind because I'm telling truth, you know, and mm-hmm. there are others that are like, well, I'm being gracious, but I'm never going to actually be truthful, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or being truthful is ungracious. Right. Right. Or something like that, you know, but, but um, we have to hold those things together, right? We have to hold those things together. We have to recognize that it, it that being truthful um, is a form of grace, but it has to come out that way. Being gracious actually carries with it the the call to also be honest and be truthful with people. Mm. It carries both of those. We, so we have to have both of those things working. I, I think what I hear you saying then is that the institution has to care as much about or more about even truth as it does about the graciousness of the people who are involved in the institution. It has to. Yeah, it has to hold those, both of those things together. That's yeah. exactly right. So, so to, I think tone policing is when in order to get out from under the truth that someone has to share, that we point to the way they shared it to say that because you shared it this way, I don't have to now reckon with the truth that you're having, that you're sharing. Mm. Okay. And that's really what tone police, tone policing is saying, let's pay more attention to how you said what you said than what you said. Uh, You know, an institution that is doing the oppressing has no business saying to that person, we will not hear you unless you come to us on our terms and in mm-hmm. our way and in, 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 in our tone. Right? right. That's that's another form of oppression. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so we definitely don't want to suggest that in the least. Right. That, that, that's another way in which they use that kind of power dynamic. Mm-hmm. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm counseling folks who are on the bottom or folks who are in systems uh, around how can we be more faithful witnesses of Christ's truth in terms of, of not just the propositions that we speak, but also Christ's heart for 
humanity. That that makes total sense. And I appreciate that. But I also just took us on a tangent because I had those thoughts and I would still like to hear <laughs> uh, the second half of Susie's question, which I think is 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 really important for people to understand like where you're coming from and to humanize people who are talking about this stuff. You know, yeah. the, the, the strain and everything that it puts on you and your family. How do you, how yeah. do you deal with that? I would say prayer, a lot of prayer, hmm. a lot of laughter. Okay. Uh, and recognizing my priorities. So, so here's, here's, here's what I mean by that. I mean, um, so we, we have to recognize our deep dependence on the Lord and be going to the Lord regularly to call on the Lord on behalf of our families and ourselves for help. Um, as we, as we, and, and, and to be honest, to lay out our lament before the Lord. Um, I think so, um, so so honest prayer before the Lord and laying out your lament and your frustrations and your complaint before the Lord is a form of care, right? It's, it's, it's God allowing us the space to be able to um, to bear the load of that space. He, he's saying, bring this to me. There's some dysfunction. There's some there's some poison. There's some toxicity, there's some pain that this cir- circumstance or situation or system, it will, will try to thrust upon you. And you take all of that and you, and you put, you, you bring it here, you, you, you cast it to, you give it to me and you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to, um, withstand those spaces. If you aren't giving it to the Lord, if you aren't, uh, going through that, the, the actual, um, the the sort of routine, the ritual uh, of actually taking it and laying those burdens before the Lord, casting your cares before the Lord. Um, so so that's 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 one thing. Uh, another thing I, I mentioned was uh, was laughter. You know, it's really important that not only do do we do that we weep and lament, but we also find spaces to laugh and um, and actually lay hold of joy. I think joy can be a, um, you know, I've heard people say, you know, joy is a revolutionary act, you know, um, because what joy does is joy makes an eschatological claim. What joy says is that trouble is here, but trouble won't last always. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Joy says there's an end date. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's an end date to this suffering. And so I can, I can, I can laugh uh, even in the midst of, of my suffering. Yeah, it, it was it was interesting. It's one of the kind of great seeming contradictions of um, of the black experience in America. You could read testimonies of slaveholders who were struck and confused by how much enslaved people would sing and laugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not singing and laughing because their situation is not painful and dire and heartbreaking and heart wrenching. But they are laughing because they know that this situation does not have the final say. Mm-hmm. Amen. Uh, so, so laughter. Um, I, I just think that does. A, I, I think that's that's just that's a form of self care. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I look. I love stand up comedy. I, I watch a lot of stand up comedy. And you and Jonathan have that in common. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking of you guys when he said that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I watch. Uh, I'm. A, I watch Marvel things. Uh, yeah, I watch Star Wars things. And then now you're uh, talking my language. 
Oh my goodness! Yeah, I mean, Boba Fett, Mandalorian, all the things. Uh, if it's if it's happening on Star Wars, I'm I, I'm watching it. You know, and um, you know, I don't think that's escapism. Actually, I don't think it's I don't think that's saying I'm not I'm I'm not paying attention to the the realities of this world. But I think it's saying I I am paying attention to the realities of this world in a different way. And I think it's saying because uh, that's that's the one one of the wonderful things about like sci-fi and fantasy is that you can still engage the real dynamics of this world, but you can do it in a different way. And you can imagine- Different worlds. You, you can imagine greater possibilities. Mm-hmm. You can imagine something different. And I think that's one of the great gifts of, um, of, of, of the scriptures and, and, and of the prophets, right? With the prophets, what they bring is they bring, they don't just bring just, an, just a new idea. They bring a new vision. Right. They're they're saying, behold, this vision of of community, of of peace and shalom, like you like everything in your lived reality would say that this wasn't even possible. But look, you know, look at God's intention. And, And when people see that as a possibility and not just a possibility, but a guarantee for our future, man, it changes everything. You know, it changes everything. It's like, oh, my goodness. Like. The you know uh, so I would say you know laughter uh, um, you know uh, uh, again fantasy sci-fi get, go somewhere where your imagination can be expanded you know where you can where you can question things that you thought were not que- could never be questioned you know uh, where you can begin to imagine a, something new for yourself and something new for this world and something new for the future yeah so yeah. laugh a lot yeah. <laughs> I love how you just brought us full circle from where we started, where you were talking about expanding our theological imagination. And then you brought it down into self-care. And just a side note on what you were saying about laughter. So in my sort of previous life in in Lebanon, and um, we were working with teams that were implementing spaces for children in Syria to kind of deal with some of the trauma that they were facing and provide sort of psychosocial support. And we would do deep breathing exercises with these kids because that's one of the things that helps relieve that kind of stress and helps you physiologically deal with that kind of trauma. And it turns out one of the things I learned is that laughter and singing both create that same deep breathing mechanism. And I just thought how wise of God that he has us gather together and sing together. And that, you know, not only are we in the presence of God worshiping him, but physiologically that helps take the burden off. And of course, you know, you talked about prayer and I actually was listening to a sermon of yours where you talk about prayer as a form of almost catharsis and that, and then now you sharing about laughter, it just, again, the wisdom of God and knowing we need these things. These are good things. These are holy things, even though we're not sort of conditioned to usually view them in that way. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, You know, so I would say, Think about the way in which God um, has crafted, carefully crafted worship, right? So in the Old Testament, um, the Lord calls his people to rejoice before him. And it's not to say that that whenever we get together, all we can do is laugh, but that's part of what we're supposed to do as well. Hmm. You know, we're, we're actually called to actually rejoice, to have genuine joy before the Lord, um, because the Lord knows that that we need that. Because as I said, you know, uh, trouble won't last always. And the Lord brings us to this wonderful table 
that says to us that trouble won't last always. It's a table that, that simultaneously signifies the brokenness of this world, but also the healing of this world. Also, the fact that I love it that it looks back and forward. It's not just a table where we remember the brokenness and remember the pain, but it's also a table that says that participates in the feast of the of the coming of the of the lamb that participates in in the new creation, the not yet coming into the already. And God saying, hey, you know, we are going to a place in which you will laugh. And um, and, and I want you to begin to lay hold of that today. Our, our household has a lot of laughter. Our church has a lot of laughter. Um, <laughs> laughter is life-giving. You, you know how I know that you're serious when you say your household has that is just from listening to uh, your wife on Truth's Table. And that, because that <laughs> podcast, they just never stop laughing. <laughs> Even when they're talking about like deadly serious things. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, a res- it's a response to theodicy, right? So, you know, theodicy is the, the problem of evil and suffering. It's that kind of tension between um, the 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 omnipotence and omnibenevolence of God, the goodness and the and the power of God, uh, over against the idea that you know, over against the suffering that we see in this world, right? And so we say, man, God is good. God, God, God wouldn't will my suffering. God is powerful. God can prevent my suffering. So how? Why am I suffering? Well, well, people have wrestled with that that tension um since suffering has been in this world and 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 theodicy and 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 laughter is one way that people can um can 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 address that one way in which in which people can look pain and suffering in the face and again say that it won't last always um that 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 it that it does not have a a claim over my over all of of what I and who I am, right? Even though it it impacts me, um, there's still a greater reality that makes a claim on me. You know, it cannot rob me of my humanity. It cannot rob me ultimately of my dignity. Um, Mm -hmm. And so uh, so we Mm -hmm. can, in the worst of circumstances, God gives us sometimes the ability to even laugh. Can I, uh, I have another question kind of along those lines, although it's on a bit of a different subject, which is that you, you, you did your PhD, I believe, on the life and theology of, of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. I did. And you wrote a, and you wrote a book about it too. Um, yeah. What specifically from his work do you get, do you bring with you that aids you in helping people in your church on a day-to-day basis walk through suffering and, and particularly the racial injustice related suffering that you, oh, yeah. you have to yeah. face. Yeah. A number of things. One thing is uh, now the thing I, the thing I focused on directly through my particular research was something called redemptive suffering. Right. Mm. Um, and redemptive suffering doesn't necessarily mean what, uh, what it sounds like. Right. What, what, what people, when people hear redemptive suffering, what they think it means is they think it means that somehow suffering is good. Right. Or somehow suffering is is noble in and of itself. Right. But what we're what, what it actually is, is is saying that given the reality of suffering in this world, God does not leave us without a witness. God gives us the opportunity to engage even the worst of life circumstances in a way that witnesses to Jesus. What that lets us know is that Jesus is always with us. Jesus is always sanctifying. 
Jesus is always blessing. Jesus said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And so Jesus is with us even in the face of life's worst circumstances. What King was able to do was he, he looked at the black social situation in America and he was able to make the connection between that social situation and the cross to say Jesus is one who understands what it's like to suffer. And although um, the tension between um, the tension of theodicy between, um, you know, again, God's omnipotence and omnibenevolence and the suffering we see in this world, it will never be fully resolved rationally in our minds. But we know God is with us in it and through it. And why do we know that? Because of Jesus Christ, because God himself has taken upon himself the suffering of this world. He has willingly stepped into it and shown solidarity with us. And that's actually a more powerful response than a philosophical answer. Mm. For I'll give an example. Um, you know, so I, I think it is fascinating that the oldest book in the Bible is Job. Right. The book of Job, the book that is all about the Odyssey, that's all about suffering. Right. And and it's amazing that in that book, God doesn't give an answer. God is not like now. He, now, the answer is X, Y and Z. You know, <laughs> you're wondering why this happened. The answer is X, Y and Z. Yeah. That's not how the book resolves. Mm -hmm. Nope. That's not what happens. What we are assured of is we are, we are assured that suffering is not the fault of the victim. Right. That suffering does not have easy answers. But we are also assured of this, that God knows about it. Right. That's mm -hmm. this courtroom scene at the beginning shows the Lord God knowing all about Job, knowing knowing more about Job than God than Job probably ever imagined God knew about him. God God was deeply um, aware of Job's situation and aware of the suffering that would come his way. Right. God was sovereign over those things. God had had the whole situation, as it were, under control to the to the degree that the devil himself has to sort of ask God's permission because Job is God's servant. And that's why God says, have you considered my servant, Job? So God is aware. God is sovereign over. Um, that's so important for people who are suffering and on the bottom because they need to know that God is bigger than the forces that are over them. People who are on the bottom need to know God is bigger than the forces that are over them. Now, this brings me back to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Because Dr. King went to he went to what we might call liberal seminaries, <laughs> engaged Protestant liberalism, but he was a he was an African American that grew up in the segregated South. And so he knew suffering firsthand. And he knew he needed a God that could make a way out of no way and intervene. And so when Protestant liberalism said, well, God might not be all powerful, Dr. King said, no, 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 you don't understand. We need a God that's all powerful. We need a God that can make a way out of no way. Right. We need a God that can intervene because we got the kind of suffering that needs intervention. You know, <laughs> so we, we don't have the ex we don't have the existential privilege to not believe in a God that's sovereign. Mm. And so uh, that's why King held on to those things. You know, he has his famous kitchen vision um, in 1956. Um, this was a few months after the Montgomery bus boycott had begun. 
Um, he was getting death threats every day. King got upwards of 40 death threats every single day. And um, he had his own ways of coping with that. But um, in, 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 in January of 1956, he got a call in the middle of the night. They had threatened um, his family. They threatened to bomb his home. And, um, and he could not shake it. This threat got next to him and he could not get over it. And he said he poured over a cup of coffee and, and just prayed and, and struggled. And, and he said he began to draw back on the concepts that he had learned at Crozier Seminary in Boston University. And this is what he says. He says, and the answers didn't come there. He said, the answers did not come there. He said, but then I thought about the God that my father taught me at Ebenezer Baptist Church, the God that makes a way out of no way. Right. And, and, and then he said he heard of then he said he kind of heard a voice that told him to stand up for justice and to stand up for righteousness. And lo, I will always be with you. And so and, and, and it was it was in it was on the strength of that kind of vision early in the civil rights movement. Now you got to keep in mind that this is just a few months into it, you know, and King is already contemplating getting out. He's trying to bail out. Mm. And yet he reflects on the sovereign, powerful, loving God that the black church tradition had taught him about. And it was that vision of God that kept him going, mm. right? It was that vision of God that allowed him to know that he could continue to go forward. And no matter what happened, he would be kept by God. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so those are the kinds of sensibilities that allow me to tell people within our context that God is a, is a, is a, is a great God that's, that's, that's bigger, that, that has a stronger claim on you than the things of this world. Yes, suffering injustice, oppression, a pain, they make a claim on us. They make a real claim on our bodies and our situations. But God's claim is greater, right? God's claim on us, God's care for us um, is greater than that, right? So the sovereignty of God, that's something that I bring from, from King's theology, um, also, the presence of God in the midst of suffering, the presence of God um, that, again, uh, that's something that that uh, that kind of that kitchen vision taught King is that, that I will be with you always. And, uh, and King would, you know, this this kitchen vision is something that King repeated throughout his ministry. It wasn't just like something that sort of happened and he went on with his life. This was kind of something for him that he felt was almost like a a kind of conversion experience for him in a certain kind of way. It was the thing that when he was at his wit's end and he was ready to give up and ready to quit, it was the thing that reoriented everything for him and, and sort of gave him the kind of um, perseverance that you saw. Um, and, 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 and at the center of that was not only God's sovereignty, but also God's presence. Um, it's the cross that lets us know that God is present with us through our suffering because it is at the cross and through the cross that we see most clearly God's solidarity with us in suffering. God saying, I will not just tell you how to get through this, but I will come alongside you in this. And I will take it upon myself in, in, in all of its brutality. Um, those, if, you've, if you've undergone injustice, so have I. 
If you've undergone, if you've undergone abuse, so have I. If you've undergone uh, abandonment, so have I. If you've undergone all of these things, uh, uh, you know, I, I have done it as well. And I've done it to show you the extent of my love for you. That was a lot. I'm taking all that in. Yeah. I would love to ask you about uh, his phone call to Mahalia Jackson at another point. Oh, yeah. But um, there's some stuff there for me. But um, you're the lead pastor <laughs> of a church in Nashville. And something that has stood out to me going to a multi-ethnic church in New York City is that like, often we are a multiracial community that functions as a white church. Yeah. Um, and so how do you go about trying to lead people into a truly multi-ethnic, multiracial community as opposed to leading a church that's culturally white with black folks in it? Absolutely. So so we have got to deal with the issue of power because because mm-hmm. because race is um, is a reality of a power disparity. That's what race is. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we have to recognize that, that we're not just in multicultural or multi-ethnic spaces. We are in multiracial spaces. And so we come uh, to these spaces reckoning with power disparities and injustice and oppression, uh, the, the, the misuse of power. And so we have got to be deliberate about addressing that within the life of the church in institutional ways, not just symbolic ways, but institutional ways and practical ways. Um, and so this is what this is what what I would suggest for anybody. Um, first of all, you have to have a commitment to um, to recognize. First of all, you got to recognize that the church is the venue of redemption, flourishing and freedom. Um, the Lord rescues his people out of Egypt. He brings them to Sinai and God rehearses the emancipatory act that he's done. Right. God says, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Right now, God is very so um, God could have just said, you know, I'm the Lord, your God. Do this, do this, do this, do this. But he doesn't. He says, I brought you out of Egypt. And he wants to remind them what, 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 the, what the situation was in Egypt, out of the house of bondage, right? And so what God is saying is he's saying, I'm going to give you through these laws an emancipatory culture, right? I've just rescued you and I don't want you to turn into Pharaoh to each other. I don't want you to turn this covenant community back into Egypt because that's what you'll do if I leave you to your own devices. So I'm going to give you an emancipatory culture. I'm going to give you a way of being and flourishing in community that is meant to protect and promote freedom and flourishing. And 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 that's what the church is. It's supposed to be uh, a, not just a covenant community, but an emancipated community, an emancipatory community in which we have a culture of freedom and flourishing. OK, so we've got to actually understand that that's what's supposed to be happening in the church. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. Right. So let's talk about the church as this emancipatory community. When we do that, then we will be then we will understand why it's so important that we use our our organization and our dollars to actually address the, the, the areas of oppression um, and injustice and inequity in people's lives. So what we so what we want to do is, first of all, 
we want to think about, um, we want to, I would say for anybody who's in a multi-racial church, I would say, think about, first of all, your hiring practices, who's in leadership, right? And what does that say about your commitments there, about who can carry authority within the church, right? And it's not just that the hired folks who are on uh, on, on your, your leadership team or leadership staff are the only people that carry authority. They aren't. But um, but they are strategically placed people that can be cheerleaders and representations about about who we're willing to invest in in our church that might carry some kind of authority. You know, and people look for that. People look for that. I think every I'll, I'll put it this way. I think our churches have to be intentional about finding biblically qualified, competent black women to carry authority within the church. I'm going to say that again. Mm-hmm. I think our churches within our context uh, in, in the United States have to be very intentional about, fi- about finding biblically qualified, competent black women to carry authority in the church. Mm-hmm. Why do I say that? Because, um, because black women are the group in our society that is most likely to have a, uh, to have authority taken or denied or or, or most likely to be um, in many ways um, diminished and dehumanized and put on the bottom of the caste system. And so in the church, we've got to be super careful about showing that they are not at the bottom, that they carry that 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 they can be that they that they can carry authority that they have wisdom that we need that they have dignity that they have work that they can lead and that we can follow because there's so many contexts in which we will never get to follow a black woman's lead or submit to a black woman's authority and so we've got to be out on out in front with that you know the early church was known for that the the early church um it was a shocking community because it was a community in which someone who had been enslaved could actually be a, uh, an elder or a deacon. It was someone that, that you know, and, and, and the person that, that was the owner would have to submit to their authority. Now, that was a shock, right? Uh, this is the whole, if you were, if you're all familiar at all with the book of Philemon, this is really at, at the heart of the book of Philemon, the ways in which what the Lord has done actually um challenges the social caste systems of our world by flipping them on their head. Okay. Mm-hmm. Another thing, um, make sure that 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 you read, as I've mentioned before, that you read the Bible with marginalized voices, uh, hear the wisdom that the Lord has given them about, about, um, about how to know God. And, and, and so a, a lot of times our congregations are listening to us about who we are quoting. Right. And if your only quotes are from rich white men or uh, <laughs> or, uh, or or dead prominent white men, then the com- then you're saying something about who you believe has wisdom. But we need to diversify. Right. Those sources. Think about this. I love Proverbs 31, but not for the reason that some people love it. Right. <laughs> I love Proverbs 31. Because in Proverbs 31, so Proverbs, by the way, is a collection of, of wisdom around justice and equity that, mm-hmm. that, is actually, that was actually intended to in, equip 
the leaders, the governmental leaders of Israel to function well within the society. And so King Solomon pulled together all of this wisdom. And here's this Proverbs 31, which is actually the, 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 the recorded wisdom of this woman. Uh, <laughs> it's this king's mother that's basically saying, this is what my mom taught me about how to be a, a, a just official. This is what my mom taught me, you know, and he begins to lay it all out. And it's not it doesn't begin with like how to find a wife. It begins with like how to rule justly, how to listen to people who are on the bottom, how to advocate for people who don't have rights. And if, if you look at the way Solomon um, actually actually dealt with his own mother, how how how, uh, how he listened to his own mother and had and had actually a throne uh, built beside his throne where his mother sat so as a co-regent, you know? Um, so like, we just gotta, you know, we gotta be careful about who we listen to and, and we gotta cite these sources and we gotta let people know, hey, I'm listening to lots of different voices here, you know? Mm -hmm. And you ought to listen to them too. When we do that, so, I, so I'm, and I'm very careful about that. When we, so our sermon illustration is another thing, you know? So who you cite, you know, make sure you're citing, you know, again, Ida B. Wells, Harriet Tubman, Phyllis Wheatley, Mariah Stewart, um, Mary McLeod Bethune, you know, all these folks that have good wisdom from God. Also, uh, make sure that you use sermon examples that not only illustrate the point, but illustrate the point in ways that that challenge oppressive norms. Mm. And then also talk about all of what the Bible talks about. There are some great commentaries uh, I'm thinking of, for instance, uh, I'm, I'm preaching through the book of Acts right now. And Dr. Willie James Jennings is an amazing resource on the book of Acts. Hmm. Right. Um, another one is uh, Craig Keener. Amazing resource. Uh, Old Testament. Man, Walter Brueggemann is an amazing resource uh, around the weightier matters of the law, around how justice makes a claim, you know, and. Read those commentaries and talk about what the Bible talks about. You know, um, you know, uh, talk about the justice things. Don't spiritualize it away. You know, um, that that will tell the congregants under your preaching that this is a community that cares about justice. Also, pray about those things. Do it deliberately. Do it. You know, we pray about. We pray about all the things, you know, uh, I, I pastor in a community, Bordeaux, Nashville in Northwest Nashville has higher rates of incarceration than any place else in the nation. OK, I'd be a bad pastor if I didn't. It, you know, me, I'm, we're, and so our mission uh, as, a, as a church is to love diverse people, places and things to life. And what kind of pastor would I be if I claim to love this neighborhood? But I did not talk about the scourge that this neighborhood is facing. And I didn't pray about that. And I didn't ask God to to please heal that and um, and, and please address that and please restore that. And, and another major issue that this neighborhood is facing is gentrification. You know, um, it's a community that whose culture is being erased, you know, through gentrification, through uh, through the through 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 in some through a kind of colonization, you know, frankly. And and those are things we pray about. Those are things we talk about. So, you know, being in a multiracial community means you have to, you know, you talk about those things. And what you do is you summon the community together, not just 
the minorities in the community, but you summon the you you, you summon majority folks. You summon white folks to say, "Hey, I'm going to weep with those who weep. This is your burden is my burden." And that's a beautiful thing. And I think and here's here's the last thing about multiracial churches I, and I'll just I'll shut it down with this. Multi we need that kind of witness because the world doesn't care really if if black people talk about this amongst black people only. Cuz they expect that, to be honest with you. They expect that. The world cares when you have a multiracial community of people who are challenging the boundaries and the cultural expectations that society sets and says, I know that my society says I'm not supposed to care about this, but I do. Right. I know that this is suffering that I'm not supposed to see, but I do see it. And I'm going to address it for Jesus's sake. I'm just going to let all that soak in. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's as good a place as any to end it. I really, <laughs> we also, I know, yeah. I know you have to, you have to go now, Dr. Evanson, but this has been really great. Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, before you go though, I just wanted uh, to give you a chance to let people, listeners know where they can uh, follow you or, or anything, any work you're doing that you might want to uh have them take a look at. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. So, um, yeah, I would say, you know, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be out on, on, on platforms. My main bread and butter is in the life of the local church. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but if you really want to sort of know what, where my heart for ministry is, um, you'd have to go to uh, cpccoinonia.org. That's our church's website, cpccoinonia.org. And and get a look at our worship services and you'll really know and, and not just the sermon, but actually all the entirety of the worship service. And 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 uh, and then you'll get a sense of the rhythms of our a little bit of a sense of the rhythms of our community, the things that our community is is passionate about, the justice work um, that we're doing in the community and, and, and within the life of the church. And and I and if anybody will kind of sort of want to wants to follow my work, that's where you follow it. You follow it by by getting connected to our local church and its its uh, its life and its 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 mission. Especially if you're in Nashville, go go check out Coinonia. Um, I have yeah. watched a couple of those services. So I could vouch for it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Evanson, for being here with us today. We we really really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed. Thank you so much for listening today. Just as a quick reminder, go to ktfpress.com slash free month to get a free month of our subscription and check out our newsletter and the bonus episodes of this show. Leave us a rating and review on your podcast player. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at KTF Press. And don't forget, you can always write in to shake the dust at ktfpress.com with any questions you have about anything you hear on our show, and we might answer your question uh, on a future show. Our theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam, and we will see you all in two weeks. When you arrive, I see immigrants, and you call us citizens, and you welcome us as children home. When you arrive, as immigrants, and you call us citizens, and you welcome us as children home. Okay, here we go. As, as Super Mario would say, here we go. Um, he talks? So, what? 
He talks? You know that Mario talks? No. What does he say? He says, here we go. Where? When? In what venue or context? Jonathan, you haven't played a Mario game since like Super Nintendo, have you? Yes. Yeah, that's the issue. 